Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. So welcome, Pablo, to the Peace Building Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thank you, Susan, for inviting me. Yeah, you are as uh, you know one of my oldest and dearest friends and colleagues, and uh, so it's really an honor always to uh, to have you on the show. To have somebody with the depth of experience that you have, and I mean, I was looking over just just knowing your journey, and of course, I don't know it as well as you do, but but <laughs> it's, it's just a really deep and interesting journey, and. Um, so I'm really looking forward to what you have to say about this and, you know, whether you, you may not, I don't know whether you even identify with the term peace building, but certainly you've been in the world of negotiation, conflict resolution, transformation for a long, long time. Does that sound accurate? Yes, absolutely. And mm. thank you for inviting me. I mean, I'm very proud that my friend is doing uh, is, is, is putting together an endeavor like this. So if I can help in any way, it would be very exciting. Uh-huh. So I wanted to just share with the listeners your bio because um, it's really pretty short and sweet. And it's a beautiful bio, really. It's a really beautiful bio. Um, it's just it's just so succinct. And, and uh, so I'm going to say, so anyway, Pablo, so for over 20 years, I've had the joy and privilege of being a consultant, practitioner, and professor in negotiation strategy, innovation, leadership, and teamwork. Together with my partner, Stephanie Walcott, we lead an international consulting boutique, Aluna Catalyst, and have built a smart and passionate team. Our mission is to contribute to social prosperity by transforming one organization and one leader at a time. Nice. My ongoing commitment is to offer to as many organizations and people as possible essential approaches to build a better world and overcome the complex challenges we face to create a sustainable society. On this journey, I have worked with a wide range of organizations from multinational corporations to government agencies to the United Nations to local communities. I am a cultural translator, I like that term, a mediator, Uh, a negotiator and a negotiator to help everyone work towards a shared purpose and mutual prosperity. For the past two decades, I have been invited to teach and facilitate at universities around the world, Kellogg School of Management, Columbia University, Universidad de los Andes, and McGill University. Being both an academic and a practitioner allows me the ability to offer a richer viewpoint and a more informed systemic perspective to my students and my clients. So then, and then you go on to basically, um, you've been a founder and you are just for three months, you've been the founder and chief of Catalyst. No, you're, I like this. You are the chief catalyst 
at a lunar catalyst. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I like that, that, that phrase. That actually was uh, the idea of my partner, Stephanie, and uh, she helped me with the bio to, be, to, to give you a full disclosure. She, I mean, she writes much better in English than I do, so I wrote the structure and she helped me polish it, which she did a very good job at. Well, what really stands out, so anyway, and then you are a professor at McGill. You've done that for 14 years, teaching complex negotiation and uh, you're a professor uh, de, de cathedra. I don't know what that means. Oh, yeah. Cathedra means a part. I mean, is a, is a is an elegant name to call you a part-time professor at Universidad oh. Andes. It sounds good, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> I teach. Uh, so, so you've been doing that at Universidad de los Andes for a long time, and and then the thing that's interesting is that you just recently you've been you were the CEO for Tandem uh, Insourcing uh, for how many years? Fifteen years. Yeah, something years. like that. Yeah. And this so what's really noticeable to me as your colleague and friend is that this is quite a a transformational bio in the sense that before you were very hardcore negotiation person really, you've always been in my mind the the person who teaches negotiation better, teaches and trains in negotiation better than than anybody I know. Um, oh, that's very kind. <laughs> well, no, I think it's it's accurate. And so we, we have had a lot of fun together, so yeah, yes, <laughs> we have. Yes, We've, um, <laughs> yeah. So, so, but it's it really stands out the the transformation of you know sort of a hardcore yes. business person in negotiation leadership development. Well, actually, I don't know if you, you uh, yeah, the negotiation and strategy mostly. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, very. I mean, I think my. Yeah, it summarizes my journey fairly well uh, in the sense that I started as more of a technical person uh, from, I mean, I have an engineering background, I have a business background uh, to hopefully becoming more aware and more uh, of a spiritual person. Uh, uh, and I think that was, that's what the, the, most, the most interesting part of my journey has been. Uh, of course, I'm, in, I'm, I'm interested in peace. Uh, I mean, that has to do with sustainability, to transforming leaders, to transforming organizations. Uh, and that's how I started my journey, I suppose, with that idea. I think at the beginning I did it more for myself in the sense that it, it sounded fun to be a consultant. It sounded sort of uh, elegant to be a professor. Uh, and, and of course, you know the story. I mean, uh, your colleague... Uh, and you opened the door for me uh, as a as an international academic when you invited me to teach for to train for for teachers college uh, in the contract you had with uh, with uh, with uh, the United Nations which was a really uh, fascinating experience uh, both the, the the times i had the, the opportunity to teach with you but also the experience of having this idea of the United Nations being this incredible body of uh, possibilities uh, to contribute to peace and realizing that uh, in reality uh, when we taught conflict resolutions and this is my perspective but we have, I have shared it with you a few times uh, we, we realized that people were more interested in using conflict resolution skills to solve organizational problems and to take them to the field and see if they could contribute to peace by doing what the United Nations should be doing, which is uh, uh, working in the field. Uh, and, and, and that's, you know, w one first uh, reflection, which was, it surprised me quite a bit that 
these people who work in, in the United Nations were frustrated uh, because they couldn't they, they could not do well what they came to do which was uh, work in the field help people help countries develop and they were spending a lot of their energy in, in internal politics and and solving petty issues which like you know why do I not get the corner office that was sort of really really surprising for me and that's just an experience I share with you at that time uh, so so I guess my, my, my journey somehow has been more a journey of, of uh, uh, becoming more aware, more, uh, I don't want to say the word enlightened because it sounds sort of pretentious to me. Um, it's okay. It's more aware. <laughs> We're all trying to head in that more direction. Conscious, yeah. More conscious. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, the change from Tandem to Aluna has to do with that. Aluna is a Kogi world. Uh, Sorry, is it what? Is it what? Kogi are the Indians who are in La Sierra Nevada Santa Marta, which is the highest peak in the world next to the ocean. Yeah. It's a single mountain. I mean, you know, Colombia is traversed by the La Cordillera Los Andes. Yeah. But uh, La Sierra Nevada is not part of La Cordillera Los Andes. It's the highest peak in Colombia, 6,000 some meters, 6,500, 600, six, I should know my geography, but uh, 6,600 mm -hmm. sounds about right. And the Kowis have been always guarding that mountain. I mean, they had to fight with uh, with uh, big organizations like Oxy. I remember when 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 I heard about that uh, struggle between the Kogis and Oxy. Oxy is what kind of an organization? Probably? Occidental Petroleum, the okay. fourth largest uh, oil company in the world, yeah, in, okay. in the U.S. at least. Uh, and uh, I remember that my thought was, well, yes, I understand that uh, in indigenous tradition is very important, but development is always is very important too. And if Oxy is going to look for oil in in Colombia, that's good for Colombia. That was my thought then. Uh, being less uh, less uh, informed about these things, perhaps, and now I realize that you know they were right, and we chose uh, Aluna. Aluna means a space of transcendence. Mm -hmm. uh, the Kogi made a movie, actually. You, it's it's worth watching. I actually think I've seen it. I think I've, a friend of mine has been working with them, and I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, and uh, actually, they pay for the documentary. They pay themselves for okay. it, and it's about uh, you know. Uh, trying to make uh, Western, uh, what they call uh, small brothers, because they call themselves big brothers, because they are there to guard us, uh, more enlightened about the relationship with nature. And of course, La Sierra Nevada is a fundamental part of the Colombian ecosystem, because a lot of the water around that area comes from La Sierra Nevada. Mm. And that's what they've been guarding. So we chose uh, Aluna because of the Kogis, uh, and it means, as I said, a space of transcendence. And Catalyst, because uh, Catalyst is an agent of change, mm -hmm. uh, and is more the technical part. So Aluna is the spiritual part, uh, uh, Catalyst is the technical part. So going back to, to, to your question about, about peace, uh, yes, of course, living in a country as, uh, in, uh, I mean, as complex as Colombia, where we have drugs and, and drug lords and uh, left-wing guerrillas, and not only one group, but two groups of left-wing guerrillas and paramilitaries. And I mean, of course, you cannot, you cannot work in negotiation without, without thinking about conflict resolution, about how, to want to con about how you can contribute to the peace process. And um, uh, 
I tried, I mean, I, 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 if it, when, when they started in negotiations, I even tried to get involved in the peace process, but somehow they did not want my help, which is fine. <laughs> why, why do you, that's interesting, why not? I would think they would. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, they, they have, a, my sense is they have a very good team of people behind the peace process. Mm -hmm. uh, so probably they didn't need any more experts in negotiation. Mm -hmm. I was contacted at some point to see if, if I could help them. I wish I could have gotten involved, but it, I mean, the opportunity did not present itself. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an opportunity that didn't work for me in, 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 in a field where, um, you know, I'm supposed to be an expert. Um, you are an expert. I mean, Thanks. So, so, but you know, looking back at, at the work we've done together and, and all the and all the work I've done in negotiation, uh, of course, negotiation techniques are and, and strategies and the approach we use, which is more systemic, uh, is something I strongly believe in as, as as being very useful for conflict resolution, for building consensus, for helping people reach complex agreements. I mean, working in the free trade agreement, as you remember, was fascinating. Uh, I mean, it was an opportunity that presented itself sort of fortuitously. What, what um, I mean, I obviously know that, you, say a little bit, what did you do with the free, you, you were you were doing what? It, it all started because uh, I was, I mean, I've been a professor at the University of Los Andes for a long time. And the, minister, the vice minister of commerce was looking for someone to train the, 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 her team of negotiators at that point uh, in, uh, in negotiation. And um, uh, we started uh, training the, 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 the team that was going to negotiate with the United States a free trade agreement uh, in, jointly with Peru and Ecuador because it was a joint negotiation between the three countries. And uh, we did a few workshops and uh, someone really fascinating, uh, was a person I respect a lot, Hernando Jose Gomez, uh, came uh, to replace the person who had hired us, I don't remember her name, the vice minister, as the chief negotiator for the free trade agreement for Colombia. And, uh, and um, he, he's a very, I mean, he's been working for the public sector for all his life, but he's very exceptional in the sense that he's not a politician. He, he has no interest uh, in, in working for, for, for the government, different than doing his best job for Colombia. So it was a privilege to work with him because we got this very disciplined, economist leading the uh, very serious economist very uh, very ethical economist leading the the, the the free trade negotiation and he realized he needed help so so we kept on training his team some something like like 150 people uh, and uh, then he got excited and says okay we, we we don't only need to train but we need to strategize so we started helping with the strategy and it ended up being an incredibly complex negotiation because, and you don't realize it when you begin. I mean, when we started, we were just going to do a training, mm -hmm. uh, which we did a lot of. And then we started helping him and we realized this was the most complex negotiation we have had ever been involved with because we had to negotiate, of course, with the U.S., but that was the least of our problems. We had to negotiate internally. Uh, between the different ministries, which are uh, sort of like the secretaries, are what you call secretaries, we call here ministry, ministers, uh, to align them around uh, one approach to the free trade negotiation. And um, what we needed to do is to create a flexible mandate from the government for the, for the negotiators. And you know that when the men, I mean, people try to 
create mandates which, which are simple by uh, giving their negotiators or their agents positions. But you know, when we negotiate based on positions, you have not much flexibility to be creative, to do, to find win-win solutions. Uh, you're very, you're very much stuck, and you end up uh, in a typical. Uh, power and rights-based negotiation. So the first thing that he understood, and, and the president of Colombia, then uh, Uribe, President Uribe, uh, understood was uh, that if we were given a mandate based on issues, interests, and priorities, we would have we would have a much a mandate which would have been which was was going to be much more flexible and still protect uh, Colombia's interest. So that was our first job, which was to align all the different ministers uh, around a single mandate. Uh, of course, the agricultural minister had his own priorities. The commerce minister had his own priorities. The, the 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 minister of finance has his own priorities. The minister of defense has his own priorities. So we had to align all of all those people working with the vice ministers. Yeah, it comes a question: which is the harder negotiation, the internal one or the? And usually the internal one ends up being the hardest. And if you don't do a good job, then uh, negotiating with your counterpart becomes very, very difficult. Well, and then you had to move from the internal negotiations to then the, the Indian. Yeah, and, and we also we had to negotiate, I mean, just in a, in a nutshell, we had to negotiate with the ministries, we had to negotiate with the entrepreneurs and the private sector, with the civil society, with all the legal arm of the government, because they had to control the process to make sure there was not going to be any interest, uh, 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 you know, conflict of interest uh, being uh, 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 misguiding the decisions of the free trade negotiations, that we had to align our strategy with uh, Ecuador and Peru, and we had to convince them again that we should not negotiate based on positions, but based on interest, and you know that's a whole, yeah. <laughs> a whole big challenge, and then you have to engage with the U.S., uh, having a major asymmetry of power because, I mean, the U.S. is our main uh, trading partner. Uh, what the U.S. The, the, at that point, the gross national product of Colombia was two days of the gross national product of the United States, so mm -hmm. the asymmetry was clear. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was a beautiful process because we managed to really create a whole different approach to negotiation, first within the Colombian team, then uh, with Ecuador and Peru, and eventually with the U.S., and we managed to move them from interest, from positions to interest much more. And it was a, a very fascinating uh, uh, educational process for us, because we learned a lot about how to do it, but for everybody involved, because they realized that the approach was better. I actually want you to tell the piece about the, Cartagena, the, the part in Cartagena and the DSA, because I know this story and it's just a great... Which one? The one that the, the first meeting we had? Yeah, 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 about uh, telling, t t making sure that everybody didn't come back with any DSA. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things we did, which was uh, quite, quite, quite effective, is we, we agree on a process. But we agree on a process in this, in the way you, you've taught me about negotiation processes, which is, you know, you focus on the process, not on the outcome, and you have a relationship building phase, an information exchange phase, a reframing phase, a negotiation phase, an agreement phase. So we were trying to convince all, both Ecuador and Peru, but all our negotiators to focus on the process and not on the outcome. And I was in charge of writing the objectives for each meeting. And the first meeting was in Cartagena. 
And the purpose of that meeting was exclusively, exclusively relationship building. Uh, and of course, uh, that's something we had in mind, but that wasn't the, the Equatorian agenda or the Peruvian agenda, and much least the U.S. agenda. The, the U.S. wanted to move this forward fast. <laughs> Let's so, get to the point. So, so uh, what, the, what the chief negotiator told, uh, given the instructions I wrote, the chief negotiator told its people was, okay, you, your instruction is you cannot come with any money back in your pocket. I, call, I think you call it DSA, right? Yeah, the daily subsistence allowance. You organizations, they give you a certain amount of money to cover your hotel and your food and, yeah. And here in Colombia, uh, uh, government functionaries can keep the money they don't spend. They can keep whatever per diem they don't spend. Mm. So the instruction was you need to spend all your per, di per diem <laughs> dining and whining and dancing with the U.S. Uh, <laughs> representatives. And the incredible thing is it made a difference because we created a very strong bond between the U.S. negotiators and the Colombian negotiators and the Equatorian negotiators and the Peruvian negotiators, which helped us along the road down, downstream uh, the negotiation process when we had conflicts. Having such a strong relationship really helped move forward uh, and uh, overcome the obstacles that are natural to such a complex negotiation. So yes, it was a, an incredible experience because here I am, a, a young professor at Universidad de los Andes, and I get to play in what I love doing, which is a, a negotiation process, a, a major negotiation process, and I get to apply all the stuff we teach yeah. and see some of that stuff work, and most of it, actually. I, I mean, it was it is fascinating that most of that stuff works. It was really an amazing experience. And I wonder now, like in uh, with 20, you know, with 2020 hindsight, because this is a, a podcast about peace building, um, if there are any thoughts, any thoughts, you know, when you think about that process, any insight you have about about building peace? Uh I mean, I've, as you know, I worked with ex-combatants, uh, uh, and I had the privilege to to train them using your model. Actually, at that point, your conflict resolution model more than my my negotiation or our negotiation model, with ex-combatants from uh, the ELN, the FARC, and the M19, which was the M19 was uh, the the one of the first groups to demobilize uh, under uh, President Gaviria, uh, and. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the skill, I mean, we were training in conflict resolution skills, in basic conflict resolution skills. Uh, and my sense is, is, I mean, these were people like you and I, and it, what, what was different between them and us, it was basically belief systems. They believe in, in something different. And for them, the peace wasn't what we necessarily thought it would be. I mean, I remember I was really surprised because, you know, you come with a Western man mindset, you come with a, a business mindset and you think it's about, you know, money and about uh, economic opportunities. But for these kids, it was a lot about uh, prestige and recognition. And they were in the guerrilla because they were respected. And now that they were, they were demobilized, the hardest thing they had to deal with was they, they, they had lost their sense of identity, the sense of purpose. I mean, you may agree with what their purpose was or not, but they felt they had lost their sense of purpose. And more than money or jobs, they needed to find, feel respected and feel that they had a place in, in society, whatever the, that meant to them in, in, that, in, 
uh, I mean, when they were in the guerrilla, it meant being part of the, uh, the insurgent group, but being in the city, they, they felt lost. Uh, but I, I mean, I, looking looking at the peace, the Colombian peace process, and I know I don't know the details of, of how they are approaching everything. Of course, because when you're negotiating such complex processes, you keep a lot of things confidential. I mean, and that's one of the challenges we had in the free trade agreement. I'm sure is one of the challenges they're having in the peace process is how much you tell the public and how much you keep to yourself. I mean, you want a transparent process, but at the same time, you need to keep a lot of things confidential or else you, leave, you lose your negotiation leverage or negotiation capacity. Mm. Uh, but I, I, my sense is... Uh, uh, the same things that you're, we use in the free trade, which is you know preparing extremely well, pre-negotiating to position ourselves strategically beforehand, building strong relationships, even with people you don't like. Uh, and, and I interviewed someone who negotiated in the previous peace process of Pastrana, and he told me how important it was for him to build very, very strong bonds with the guerrilleros he was negotiating with, even if he did not agree with what they, 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 they what they believed in or what they were trying to achieve mm-hmm. uh, so the same the same things apply I mean building strong relationship building uh, trust being in working relationship exchanging information as transparently understanding each other other's interests because ba- you're basically problem solving whether it's a free trade agreement or a peace process right, right. yeah right. so you know um, oh there's so many different places we could go there's so many different things we could talk about. Um, do you, uh, I, part of me wants to, um, go to some of your beginnings and just your, your, you know, what, what was it in your, you know, that got you interested in this whole topic of negotiate, you know, when you look at your longer trajectory, like your early beginnings, what got you interested then? Why did you reach out to me at Columbia to try and, you know, to, to what, 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 got you interested in, in negotiation, and then you've been on this transformation now, like moving from negotiation skills to something that's much more, I think, about transformation in general, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yes. So I don't know, when you when you weave the thread from the beginning wow. to now, like what? what? <laughs> I, think I started like a lot of people begin. Uh, I started uh, being interested in negotiation because I felt uh, such anxiety when I had to negotiate. And I felt I was such a bad negotiator that I'd need to learn about it. <laughs> and I realized when I took one course, and I had the luck, the good luck to have uh, Roger Fisher at the, as my first professor in negotiation. What, did I you first. go to Harvard or did he come to uh, No, he came to, to Colombia. He came mm-hmm. to Colombia. He had strong links with Colombia at some points, I think with uh, peace negotiations. And, okay. and uh, President Uribe really believed in the, in the Harvard model of the seven elements, and he really promoted it in Antioch. And it was a big thing in Antioquia, which was then a very violent area. I mean, uh, Pablo Escobar comes from Antioquia. So it was a very... Antioquia, Medellin is in Antioquia? Medellin, yes, yes, Medellin, that's exact. He promoted the the Harvard model a lot. So uh, I had the chance to to train with him and I thought he was a fascinating man. And I still think his book is brilliant and his approach is brilliant. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of criticism. You're talking about, about getting to yes. 
getting to yes, but mm. I think it's still a brilliant book. And, mm -hmm. and what he proposes is amazing. I mean, interest and principle-based negotiation really summarizes everything we do. I mean, interest because basically people are negotiating to achieve some type of interest and principles because if you don't reach a principle agreement, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think that summarizes everything we try to teach. Mm -hmm. um, and I found it fascinating, and I found it fascinating that it was taught in a very exceptional way, which is role play, and you know that makes it safe and that makes it fun. And uh, every time you, you you did a case, you learned. Uh, so so it fascinated me, and and I, I kept on reading, uh, and eventually I had a. I mean, you know, I was I've always been an entrepreneur, as you know, uh, or at least I pretended to be an entrepreneur <laughs> and as a, at that point you know my idea of being an entrepreneur was making money I don't know if I had it I, I did I said it explicitly but my idea was making money and I went broke very catastrophically <laughs> uh, and at that point you know you gotta I got fail to, early and fail often right you know that's yes, the idea yes, yes. <laughs> so so it was a catastrophic uh, uh, financial situation I lost my apartment uh, uh, and I said, well, I have nothing to lose. Uh, what do I love doing? Well, I love teaching and I love teaching negotiation. So, so I decided to give it a try. I remember I told my father and my father looked at me very concerned and very father-like and he says, well, you know, he's like, like he, probably in his mind he was thinking, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're a failure, but, you know, go and teach negotiation. And it sounds like a hobby more for me, but I'll support you in everything you need. It was very, very generous. And it became really, really a, a lifestyle entrepreneur adventure. I mean, I did much better uh, economically uh, doing what I loved than I ever had done trying to make money. And that's how I got involved. So I started teaching at the beginning very responsibly because at that point, you know, there, and still there are no serious certificates for, for training in negotiation. And at that point, you know, I was asking myself, you know, how can I learn more about negotiation? I already heard about uh, taking what I could take in Harvard. And someone told me about your uh, your colleague, Ellen. Helen or Ellen? Ellen. Helen. Ellen. Ellen Rader. Uh, yeah. Rader. And uh, I call, I was in New York for some business meeting or for something else. And I called her and I said, you know, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about negotiation and conflict resolution. Would you meet with me? Uh, because I have some questions for you. And she very kindly said, of course, of course. And uh, I, we had an appointment and I said, well, you know, I want to learn more about negotiation and conflict resolution. But besides Harvard, where is there? I, I mean, there, I don't see any other programs. I, I didn't know about Kellogg then, or I don't know if Kellogg was training already then. Mm -hmm. And she very kindly invited me to participate free of charge uh, in the program you guys had at uh, Teachers College mm -hmm. for the psychology professors. And I, I did your first, your basic practicum on. Well, it wasn't just psychology. It was, it was, uh, it was teachers. It was HR professionals. Okay, it was. Okay, so uh, brother. Yeah, it's a teachers college. Yeah, it's a school of education. Yeah. So yes, yes, of course. Now I remember. Yeah. So of course, I did the first, the first practicum, which was negotiation, and the second one, which was mediation. At that time. Your father died, so I didn't get to meet you. Yeah. You were going to teach the second practicum, but your your father passed away, and you had to go to the funeral, I guess, and you you, you couldn't teach. But then, as uh, serendipity has it, and and I believe in that, um, we uh, I was invited to 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 train to be an assistant trainer in in a few in in one of your workshops. I think you were the, the first one I worked with. 
for the United Nations, and that's how my relationship began with you. And from there, yeah. I met uh, Morna, our colleague, and I was invited to teach at McGill, and uh, and that opened all these doors for me, teaching all over the world. Uh, you know. I've, I've, so I've, where I've have been. you? I mean, other than uh, you and I have done a ton of work at ICTY, the International Criminal Court at the in the Hague, uh, the tribunal for the United yes, Nations. Yes. Done a ton of work there, and uh, mostly, I think, there about never coming home with any of my per diem because you. <laughs> You are such a foodie and like to have the best possible food you can have wherever you go. <laughs> um, we drank it all in wine. Yeah, we did. We did. But uh, where, um, where else have you worked in different parts of the world? Oh, I think probably sort of in every continent, I think, except Australia. I haven't been to Australia, but in Latin America. And it's fascinating because, uh, you know, you would say... Well, the Colombian is very similar to Peruvian, very similar to an Equatorian, and you know, talking about c cultural differences, which is some of the, the the topics we cover in your in your in your design. I, I realize that uh, small cultural differences a lot of times are much harder to deal with than with with a. Than, than big cultural differences. You know the Oscar Wilde, I don't know if you know the Oscar Wilde quote about uh, the Brits and people from the United States, two worlds two worlds separated by a common language. Yes, yes, that's a good quote. So it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when you're going and you're going to teach in Japan, which I do because of McGill every year now, which is fascinating, I love going to Japan, uh, It's you're much more aware uh, of the fact that you're going to have to deal with cultural differences when you go to Japan than when you go to Peru. Uh, so, so you're kind of more on guard or more woken up to the possibility. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I had the possibility. I mean, I thought I've been in Africa, I've been in Asia, I've been in Europe, I've been in Central America, I've been in the Caribbean, I've been in South America. So I've been, uh, I mean, I've been lucky and privileged to, to have been able to travel. And that's what it means to be a lifestyle entrepreneur when you do everything else that everybody has to save for, <laughs> save a lot of money for, just because you do your work. So, of course, you know, when, you, when I went to Beirut, you know, you, you're, you're teaching, but you're also having a vacation. So. Of sorts. I mean, you're just having kind of an immersion vacation, you know, yes. an immer and just such an intense experience. Yes. Yeah. yes. So that was, uh, that's how it started. And uh, then I got into other consulting uh, Topics like negotiation, strategy, innovation, but uh, throughout, and, and I think negotiation has a lot to do with that. You know, I, I've I, I realized that you know everything you do is systemic. Everything is interconnected. Uh, there, you, they talk about bilateral negotiations, but you know, every bilateral negotiations end up like the free trade agreement being a multilateral negotiation without stakeholders. So I think that this idea of systemic thinking is what got me into into uh, being more interested in uh, in, uh, in in spirituality. And the f my first introduction to spirituality was by my friend Andres Aguelo, my partner, my former partner, and still a very good friend uh, at Tandem. Uh, he works with the Enneagram. The Enneagram is a, is a, a personality characterization system, uh, sort of like Myers-Briggs, but much more complex. Uh, they claim that it comes from the Sufis in, in Afghanistan. And uh, I probably discovered then what 
having an ego was. <laughs> Through the Enneagram, I realized there was something that made you function in automatic and uh, gave you a very strict worldview. And it was fascinating because the way they locate you in your Enneatype, which, which are, there is nine Enneatypes, is not by questionnaires like Myers-Briggs, but it's by listening to the characteristics of that Enneatype and then working with a group of people who believes are in, Enneatype, in that Enneatype and discovering you think so much alike them. You, I mean, you thought you were so unique and all of a sudden there is, you're working with 15 other people who are exactly like you, who think like you, who are automatic like you in the same ways and you realize, oh God, that's the ego. And uh, uh, that's where I started realizing that one of the, the, the most difficult things to deal in negotiation or in change management or in anything you do when you're trying to help other people develop or make decisions or, or reach consensus or uh, transform themselves or transform an organization or transform a community, that the, for me, the biggest obstacle have, has to do with beliefs. And I love this idea that comes from Buddhism, which it says that wisdom is triggered when you manage to completely drop your point of view, because that's when your full intelligence kicks in and you can observe a situation with your body, with your uh, mind, uh, with your emotions, uh, with your instinct, with everything that composes your, your true intelligence. And uh, that's where I've moved more towards. I, I discovered a few years ago by accident, I was reading an article from Harvard called uh, From from Object to Sub Subject, and I discovered a guy called Kagan, which I think you know very well. Too. Very well, yeah. And I, and I started... But you're talking about Robert Kagan? Robert Kagan, yes. Mm -hmm. And I started realizing that all these people, Tolle, Kabat-Zinn, Ruiz, Jack Kornfield, uh, us in negotiation when we talk about cultural differences and worldview, we were talking about the same thing. We were talking about how people's belief system drives their decision in automatic because they're unconscious about their belief systems and they hold their beliefs as true, as truth. And when you hold something as truth, well, you can, it's very hard to have a rights-based discussion or a powers-based discussion because people are, are defending something they, they, they believe is completely unquestionable. Uh, and, they, they, and they feel their life goes in it, right? Their, their life is threatened if their belief is questioned. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that uh, in, in everything we do, which means transforming the way people uh, make decisions or do things, it always go back, goes back to their belief system. And I think Reese in his Four Agreements uh, explains it very well by saying, you know, you... Who are you talking up, Wait, who are you talking about? Reese... Uh, he wrote a book called The Four Agreements. Oh, yes, I know what you're talking yeah. Okay, you know him. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and uh, he, 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 he explains how we were brought up uh, and uh, we, have, we agreed to these belief systems that were given to us and we ended up with a belief system that is accidental because we grew up there and we never questioned it. So... So now what I'm trying to incorporate into negotiation is how can you help people question their beliefs? Because a lot of times people do want to reach a deal, do want to change, but their unconscious beliefs do not let them uh, move forward. What, is that, what does that look like in practice? Like how have you shifted or changed how you actually work with a client? Uh, 
I think I, I acted much more as an expert when I started. So I said, okay, I took a course at Harvard and you have to do this. You have to look at the seven, seven elements of a negotiation. So let's begin by understanding your interests because that's what Professor Fisher says you should do. And then I realized that that wasn't effective because people do not want to be told what to do. So I moved uh, more and that, and you know, things like appreciative inquiry, generative thinking, uh, open space technology, which are much more reflective processes started appearing in my life. And I realized that if you want to change uh, someone's point of view or someone's perspective, the only people who can change it is themselves. Actually, when I was doing training for that with a, a colleague that you've, you've met or have you heard about, and it would be someone very interesting to interview, which is Kai Vodman. Oh, yeah, you uh, mentioned him. Yes, uh, he's, he, his first exercise uh, for you to become a facilitator was, okay, you need to change something in your life, which is, has been really scary for you, very difficult to change, because if you cannot change yourself, you cannot change anyone. And uh, then you realize that what really helped you change was these reflective processes where you started realizing and becoming conscious about what was driving your decisions. And, and through questions, through reflection, you, you help people. You, I mean, you, you could understand things you did not understand before. So, so, so I guess moving from being an expert to being more of a facilitator and and helping people reflect on things using, of course, models like, okay, what are your interests and, that's, and what do you think their interests are? How can we perhaps, if, is there a, a way in which we can find a solution that works for their interests and your interests? Is that, do you think what, that what you're proposing is better than their alternative? You're making people reflect and realize that, uh, and, and, and they get, by reflecting, they get, they understand things much better than if you tell them that a solution should be this or should be that. So I think I used that, I mean, a reflective approach, a generative approach of uh, problem solving and problem understanding. Uh, and I'm much more conscious about approaching a situation and trying to understand what people believe the situation is and understand where they're looking at the situation from and understanding that my job is perhaps helping them shift their understanding and shift their their beliefs in relation to that situation. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with, with conflict resolution. I mean, uh, when, you know, when we work with things like OS, open space technology or future search, uh, you always start with the future because you know that in the future people mostly agree, uh, mostly agree on, on uh, what they want. They want uh, uh, clean air, they want uh, peaceful surroundings, they want education for their children. What makes it much difficult is when is how to get there. So if you start from the future and you go back, maybe you can, if you help them create a joint uh, vision of where they want to get to, which is sort of an agreement, then maybe uh, building the road to that agreement is easier. So that actually uh, is a good segue into, and we, we are hitting our... Uh time boundaries. So there's two questions that I basically have been asking everybody. Um, and one of them has to do with the future. Uh, because of course, um, you know, whenever you're intervening in any kind of complex system, one of the things you absolutely need is a is a compelling vision of where you're aiming and what mm -hmm. you're doing. 
So um, I have two kind of uh, lofty questions for you, but they're important questions. Um, I think you've done enough conflict resolution training that you know that sometimes the word peace can feel very boring to, to many people. Many people yes. will kind of get kind of, I don't know, the energy is not there or, or there's, there's something about it. Maybe there are associations. It's not dynamic. There's, there's something that doesn't seem compelling. Um, and, um, and maybe I'm going to weave in the other question. There's two questions. And one of the first one is, you know, what's your vision? If in fact we were able to shift this planet to another level where, uh, where we had pretty much found destructive conflict, violent, the amount of energy we put into violent conflict was no longer such an area of focus, was no longer as interesting. What would we be doing? What would we be creating? What's your vision of what, what could be possible for, for, uh, this, this sorry and exciting race we belong to? That's one question. And I'm going to give you the other question at the same time, because I think you can probably weave them together, which is, is the money question is that I think a lot of times people think that, you know, you can make a lot more money off of conflict than you can off of peace. Um, and, and maybe that's one reason why people think peace is boring. I don't know, because <laughs> you can't make as much money doing it. So I don't know what your thoughts are about those, those two questions. Wow, those are, yeah, those are. I know, they're big questions. I, 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 can, I, I cannot say they're curveballs because you did <laughs> tell me you were going to ask me those questions. <laughs> I, I haven't thought about them as much as I should now that you're asking them and, you, and I need to answer them. But I mean, uh, you know, I must admit that my perspective on, on a better world is, is, has to do with what Tolle uh, says in his, uh, in his book. You're uh, talking about Eckhart Tolle? Edgar Tolle, mm -hmm. yes, on his uh, second book, I think, The uh, Good Earth. I, I've, I've been listening to it, so I haven't seen the title, um, but I've listened to it like five times. And he says, basically, I mean, uh, climate change, uh, violence, uh, scarcity of resources, you're not going to change the way people deal with the, with those issues unless they become more conscious. And uh, one of the things that sort of gave me a frame for that was I'm part of the Kellogg Innovation Network, as you know. The Kellogg, was, what, what did you say, the Kellogg Innovation? Kellogg Innovation Network at Kellogg, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a group, a network of people from all over the world, from all types of walks, government, ac academy, uh, uh, private sector, social entrepreneurs, and and Kellogg is a business school in yeah, Northwest. It's one of the most uh, prestigious business schools mm -hmm. at Northwestern, yes, of course. And um, their mission is to see how they can contribute to global prosperity through innovation. Mm -hmm. That's the Kellogg, the Kin, the, the Kin uh, mission. And there was one uh, government official from India, or former government official from India, and he was explaining what he believed the development model should be for India. And uh, I don't quite remember everything he said because it was a fairly, fairly enlightened proposition and fairly complex proposition. But I remember uh, in opposition of what he said it should be. And he says, if India and China follow the development business model of consumism of the U.S., this Consumerism? is not mm -hmm. sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if you want people to shift uh, the mindset and, and, and not and, and believe and there's a very uh, interesting uh, Latin American author called Maturana uh, they have to shift their mindset from a scarcity, a scarcity mindset and an accumulation mindset to a prosperity mindset mm -hmm. and that means that 
you have to realize that you can be very happy with much less things and much less money than you think you need. Mm. Uh, so I'm not saying anything very original, but I think Tolle summarized it, Edgar Tolle summarized it very good in his book. And yes, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that peace, unfortunately, uh, the prison system, the the drug, the war against drugs in Colombia, uh, the 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 peace process in Colombia. Uh, I mean, solving those issues is very bad business for a lot of people. Climate change is very, I mean, not solving climate change is very good business for a lot of people. But I remember reading in The Economist how the, some of the people who did the most lobbying, uh, so they wouldn't legalize marijuana because a lot, at that point, that was years ago, a big part of the population in the U.S. prisons, which are privatized, uh, I think most of them, as you may know, uh, were uh, marijuana offenders mm -hmm. and uh, offenders of, I mean, I mean, one thing is a cocaine offender and one thing is a cocaine drug lord and one thing is a marijuana dealer who is uh, growing his mar the marijuana in his basement and selling it in whoever, his friends, and how, how they, they were lobbying against uh, legalizing marijuana or doing harm reduction or reducing uh, uh, penalties uh, for marijuana offenders because, of course, they needed those people to go to prison because that was their business. So if, if you, I mean, and I, I used this example with you before, which when I, I mean, you know, there's always uh, people sometimes have a hard time not making the jo joke of you being Colombian and having something to do with drugs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember one time being very upset with someone who said that. And I, and well, I do know. I mean, every time I traveled with you and every time we would arrive in any country, oh, they yes, would put yes. you through such incredible ordeal just because you had a Colombian passport. Yes, that's true. And I remember that time that that person said it. Probably I was tired from jet lag. And I said, well, why would you give, prefer your son to have a gram of Coke or a Magnum 245? I mean, w w what are we talking about here? And of course, I mean, uh, selling guns is great business for a lot of people. So, I mean, all these, a lot of uh, the, 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 the aid that the government gave to Colombia was invested in a in former military who were either advising or doing operations in Colombia on the contract. Mm -hmm. So of course war is, a great, is, a, is an incredible business for a lot of people. So, and in Colombia you know that, I mean, you know that a lot of people don't want the peace process to happen because there is a business behind, or there's a, a, a lifestyle, if you, if you prefer, behind keeping the, 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 the conflict uh, in place in Colombia. And uh, that's one side, which is probably the most perverse one. But also, I think a lot of people are afraid because they're ignorant, because they don't understand what uh, peace means, because they don't understand who these guerrilleros are, which are just kids that were recruited, that were recruited and had no other options. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that has to do with belief systems. I think that people are afraid of climate change, uh, of dealing with climate change because uh, their worldview doesn't allow them to. I mean, they understand that something bad is going to happen, but they feel that something worse, worse is going to happen if the status quo changes or if the problem gets resolved. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's where people like uh, Keegan, as you pronounce it better than me, have a, a very good insight is that sometimes people want to change and they know that changing is better. They have to stop smoking, they have to lose weight, they have to uh, stress less, but they cannot change because something in them, a deeper belief they're not conscious of, uh, is more scary than the thought of smoking and the implications of smoking. 
And as long as they're not conscious of what is that belief that's holding them hostage for, uh, and, uh, and allowing them to change, even if they know, if they know that change is good, they're not going to change because they un uh, somehow unconsciously or, or half-consciously believe that if they change, something worse is going to happen. So I think a lot of the status quo is because uh, we are afraid of that, of what may happen afterwards. And of course, there is conflict of interest, very perverse conflicts of interest. Uh, and uh, you said peace is boring. I don't know. I don't know if peace is boring, but yeah, we have seen, I mean, there's so many failed peace processes in Colombia that I think that part of the problem in Colombia was that at some point nobody believed that it could be a peace process. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, thank you. You, you should, you're very. Uh, you, you, we could go on and on. You have a lot to say, and you're very elegant about it, eloquent about it, and uh, <laughs> no, really. Um, I should also say you speak three languages perfectly: French, Spanish, and English. Thank you. <laughs> um, but you know, as we're winding down, any um, so for people that are listening to this and that are interested in in the field of either negotiation, conflict resolution, peace building, any of the above, um, that's been your your well, negotiation, conflict resolution has been your world for a long time. Um, any words of advice? Any thoughts that you have about uh, what people might want to be thinking about? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I'm asking you these hard questions. Have my son asking me a question. I know. Uh, oh, I mean, it's, I think it's a, it's a beautiful field. I mean, I think the concepts behind uh, negotiation are, are just exciting. Uh, I mean, I wish more people would learn these skills because, I mean, one thing I have to be fair uh, with myself and with people like you who help me learn these, 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 these skills is that if you know how to use them, they're extremely useful. They're yeah. extremely useful in every aspect of your life, in your personal life. I mean, once you, I, mean, I think that the addition for me has to, the, 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 this idea that you have to get your ego out of the, the, mm -hmm. the equation because mm -hmm. your ego is really, really stupid. And, <laughs> and I think for me, probably the hardest thing in applying this skill has to do with my ego. Yeah. Uh, my ego gets in the way. But when I apply them, they're so elegant, they're so powerful. I mean, listening to another person with full presence and really being interested, at, I mean, being, being serious at understanding their interests and thinking, you know, okay, they have the right to their interests and they may be different than mine. There's a beauty in that, and there's, I mean, they're powerful tools. You just have to use them. Yeah. You just have to use them. And I think what is more frustrating about our, our job of training people is you train people, they get excited about these concepts, but then they don't use them outside. Well, so often they're into, uh, they get put inside uh, what my, what my uh, a partner of mine calls a, uh, Unliberating structures. <laughs> yes, you know yes. that then. Kind but then of you have to be. You have to be. I mean, I think that what what uh, what helped me become a good consultant in the field is that I, I was perseverance, perseverance, and I remember that uh, Fisher said always, you know, always go back to interest and 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 stick to interest. I mean, be courageous, mm -hmm. stay stay in interest, and somehow that will work out for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's. Uh, part of my journey has been being perseverant and, 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 and somehow believing there was something true about this approach to conflict resolution and negotiation. 
And I and I love it. And I love teaching and I will always always love teaching it. Yeah. And I hope more people would would use it. So we have to stop there and I uh, really thank you so much. It's just like really there's a, like about five other shows we could do together. So I hope you'll come back and do this again oh, yes. sometime. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Yeah. And it's the first time I I have been interviewed in my life, so it's a new experience for me. <laughs> you have a lot to say. So uh, I love you and thank you for doing that. Okay, bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out www.thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to Susan Coleman at susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.